When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This podcast is intended for entertainment and opinion. Nothing discussed is meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you are experiencing a mental health crisis, please call 988 or use the resources listed in the episode description. To see the sources and other resources mentioned in this episode, you can visit psychologicallymindedpod.com. To contact me with any questions or comments about this topic or upcoming topics, email me at psychmindedpod at gmail.com. And finally, please rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen to get new episodes as they post. Enjoy this episode! Hello, and welcome to Psychologically Minded. I'm your host, Grace Fowler, and today I have a very special guest. Anne Renault, PhD, is one of my colleagues in the community mental health world. Anne is a clinical psychologist with clinical interests in complex trauma, community-based interventions, and empowerment, and her research has mainly focused on global mental health and adapting interventions for a variety of low-resource populations. Plus, we're pretty good friends, so welcome to the pod, Anne. Thank you so much. I'm so honored to be here. We're glad to have you. Longtime listener, first time speaker. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And before we get into it, I do want to give a brief content warning for the topic today. We're going to be mostly talking about child stars and former child stars. So there's bound to be conversation about um, like abuse, exploitation, just some like tricky topics. So if there's anything that comes up that's hard for you, feel free to skip uh, or skip around the episode. So just want to put that out there first. Um, but Anna is the one who suggested this topic. And so why don't you tell us a little bit about what draws you to child stars? <laughs> oh, great question. Um, well, I longtime listener and for a while, you know, we talk about so many different interesting topics in the psychology world amongst ourselves. And we just couldn't nail it down for what uh <laughs> what topic we should talk about on the pod together. But I I think um, the child star piece is really interesting. Um, just thinking about the trajectories and mm-hmm. how someone can can seem to have a really successful, well-adjusted life, whether they stay in the industry or um, go live a quiet life and enjoy their riches after a successful um, run as a child star. But then there's so much more attention on those that don't, and mm-hmm. and how um really poorly it can go. And so I was, I got interested in what kind of factors might lead to these different pathways. And I'm not sure if we've solved that, but uh, <laughs> it is interesting to to think about and talk about. Yeah. Um, and I think that was where we started ahead in our conversation about doing today's episode is these like two main pathways. Of course, not everyone fits into like a cookie cutter, but there's like two main pathways for child stars. And one seems to be going into fame, becoming well-recognized, and then moving into adulthood and 
having a lot of struggles, whether it's substance use, um, struggles in relationships, struggles with money, and all of this is happening in the public and the former child star is seen to be like a mess, a train wreck. Mm -hmm. And the other side is like going to fame really quickly and then like vanishing or people not hearing about them for a long time and the question of where are they now coming up over and over again. And so we wanted to focus on like what are the factors that may influence those paths and from a psychological perspective, how can we kind of try to understand this with the caveat that like everyone is different, individual experiences like really do have a powerful impact on your life trajectory. But we can talk about some good concepts um, under this like umbrella topic. Yeah, definitely. And I think I think there is a third path and maybe we hear less about it. I'm trying to think of a good example and maybe one will come to your mind quicker. But um, because there are kids who have success as child mm-hmm. stars and then maybe disappear for a while and come back and have a career as an adult. Um mm-hmm. And sometimes there's even surprise to see like, oh, they were in that show. Um, and then I, I'm trying to think, though, if about kids that just go right through successfully into adults and not a lot comes to mind. I'm sure they're out there. Yeah, I'm not quite sure. How, I think Drew Barrymore comes to mind of mm-hmm. like consistent career in film, but I don't know if she would necessarily be categorized as like stable all the way through yeah definitely a rough patch there yeah <laughs> um i believe her autobiography is titled little girl lost um that's a lot so there was a gap between like et adorable gertie and then flower films and all of her um rom-coms that got me through my own adolescence <laughs> but yeah that's that's a good point and and then you think about like i can't think of someone more socialized to the industry in terms of famous family and probably that makes it easier to keep that um, Mm. sustain that career yeah 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 so already we're starting to see like it's an it's a mixed bag like what happens to child stars but there do seem to be similarities in what they go through while they're children in the industry and um and actually sent me this article this morning um (laughs) written by allison stoner who was i think she started at eight and maybe even younger maybe even younger but has been in stuff like to the she was like in stuff from like 8 to 17 and then ended up having to like go to rehab for an eating disorder and really need to take a break and I think she still makes music and Mm -hmm. does some like social media stuff but um that article really highlighted like the grueling aspect of the industry and these things that are happening on a systems level in Hollywood that exploit children and lead to the crash and burn that we see across all the pathways for the most part. Yes, totally. And and great example, great essay um, mm-hmm. from Allison Stoner that we would recommend. Maybe we'll... <laughs> I'll link it in the sources page. We'll, we'll link that up. <laughs> um, but she was like a famous dancer in music videos at like age eight teaching mm-hmm. master classes at age 10 for like adults dance classes and the interesting thing about her trip to rehab was she as a late teenager maybe she was 20 um put herself in rehab mm-hmm. against her management team which seemed to include family members advice mm-hmm. um they did not think that she needed it and she said no i do need this and was still like being sent on auditions while she was actively in rehab. Um, so 
quite a journey there. Yeah. Um, and gives us a good, I think, segue into these larger topics. So format for today's show is going to be like a little bit different than I've done in the past, where instead of focusing on like one person, we're going to be really talking about more general things and using different child stars as like examples to highlight either the fallout of some of these industry things or their own experiences to to better describe it. And Anne and I will be bringing our perspectives as psychologists to kind of talk about either how these things mirror our role in our ethics um, or, you know, just bringing a more like psychological perspective to some of these things. Because one thing that I think has come up is these kids typically don't have access to mental health services or at least quality mental health services. So there's definitely an area in which psychology could be applied to this topic. Oh, yeah. Big time. (laughs) And I mean, not only the mental health services that are there, you know, typically typically one engages in mental health services after there are some struggles. Mm -hmm. Um, But a lot of these kids, unfortunately, don't even have the supports in place to keep them from needing the mental Mm -hmm. health services um, and just have so much pressure on them. So, yeah. So let's dive in. (laughs) Dive in. Um, So I think the, one of the first things that we had considered about child stars is that once they enter the industry, there's really a loss of autonomy. Mm. And even before, like the decision to enter the industry may not always be in the hands of the child who is going to be in the public eye. And from a, like a psychological perspective, loss of autonomy or loss of like locus of control is really damaging to the human psyche. Like a lot of clients that I've worked with, I'm sure that you've worked with, when they come in, it's because something is now out of my control and I need help figuring out either how to accept that, how to take back control or, you know, figure out next steps. So from the beginning, these kiddos are coming into the industry with absolutely no autonomy or very minimal autonomy. Very minimal. And I mean, it's such a project of of development, right? I mean, they say like a two-year-old's most common favorite word is just no, no. And yeah while annoying, like that's good and healthy and them, you know, taking that first crack at boundary setting. Um, If you're trying to book gigs, you can't say no, you can't Mm -hmm. do things on your own timeline. And a lot of these, I think, positive parenting practices that we're seeing more of these days, Mm -hmm. um, maybe even perhaps more than when we were (laughs) growing up, um, is about that child getting to explore and have time to, to play. And if these children are literally working and Mm -hmm. I think that was something that wasn't on my mind as much because it seems fun, but it's not, it's work and it's all about someone else's schedule and, um, you're literally being directed and told how to be and how not to be all day for many days in a row. Yeah. And unlike traditional child labor of like, I think of like the 1910s or like in 1800s, like kids in a factory, that's, it's still labor what these kids are doing in Hollywood, but there's even less restrictions around how long they can be on. And let's say a child is like on a movie set for four hours or whatever the limit is. I know in California, it's like, they are pretty limited how long they can be on set but then maybe that child has to go do interviews for to promote their movie and then they have to now do social media posts to promote their movies or their uh, accounts so that they get more followers and then they have to go do another audition for the next project because this project is almost done and all of that is still work 
but it's not being considered in the limits. And so now you have children working like 20 hour days mm-hmm. and kids need like 10 hours of sleep. So that's not going to match up. Mm-mm. No. Yeah. I mean, there are labor laws for a reason <laughs> and you're right. There are now, you know, some, some restrictions in place aimed at making this better, but probably a lot of loopholes as well. Oh yeah. Yeah. And if, if, there's a loophole to be exploited then you know it's going to be exploited yes and i will say that um this is not a new phenomenon right um and i think i imagine not super well versed in the history but these child labor laws in the film industry probably came online later (laughs) and you know you have examples of kids like Shirley Temple and Judy Garland Mm. and all you think is these cute images and then we hear later that they were basically being drugged to keep the energy up Mm -hmm. um and with you know horrific and lethal in the case of Judy Garland consequences Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then turning into like lifelong struggles with substance which then become they're blamed for yes using substances like so many comments and jokes about Judy Garland being like a pill head or, you know, whatever. And it's like, well, I think there's a pretty good trajectory that we can follow to see why that happened. And it's not her fault. She was being fed amphetamines and tranquilizers as a child. So yeah. Yeah. That's going to do a number on you. That'll leave a mark. (laughs) So yeah, this like this sense of autonomy is really taken away and that can lead to distress. It can lead to like identity confusion of like not knowing like who you are and and where the boundary between you and the world ends. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think particularly for children who are stars now that are on social media, that's becoming a big problem of like not knowing where the boundary between them and other people ends. And I don't know if you remember this. This is like such a niche internet story, but do you remember when Doja Cat got mad at one of the Stranger Things kids? Uh, yes, but I don't know if I was looped into the <laughs> nuances of this Okay, this is like, here we go, deep dive on the internet. But Doja Cat was messaging one of the boys who plays Will. I think his name is Noah Schnapp. Cute kid. Cute kid. And a minor. Is a a minor. Is like 17. Doja Cat messaged him asking if one of the other actors was single, who is an adult. Yes, yes, yes. Right. (laughs) And Noah like shared the screenshots of the DMs because... He's 17 and like, how cool is it that Doja Cat is messaging him? Yeah. And she went and blasted him and was like telling on live saying that he was like a snake and saying he was like a bad person. And I think both of them (laughs) need some help in this situation. But I can also see from the perspective of a 17 year old boy who is like interacting with very famous people. His entire life has been online. He's been on that show since he was like 11 years old. Really young, yeah. Like literally America has watched him grow up. Yeah. He's probably not going to be able to think through the consequences of a decision like that. And that is probably going to stem from a lot of this like lack of autonomy in his life. Like everyone makes decisions for him. How is he ever going to learn how to make his own decisions? Wow. <laughs> yeah, totally. And and I mean, when we think about just like the nature of being in any kind of theatrical production, right? Like there is a director and um it's not you know, it's it's an adult instructing a child <laughs> on how to like play 
this mythical child that yeah. this role was designed for, um, which is already like, whoa, <laughs> a lot, lot going on there. Um, and so I can only imagine in these uh, auditions, like they're looking for a kid that's like effervescent and bubbly, but then there's this like very firm line too on even above and beyond that, like compliance as a value because you're taking direction you have to be pretty sturdy, I imagine, to mm-hmm. do a million takes and little modifications. And from the little I know and reading the the goss, um, <laughs> directors, there's a real range. And not all of them are practicing the mm-hmm. gentle parenting equivalent of direction. And some can be mm-hmm. pretty emotionally abusive. And I imagine that, that kids aren't always spared from that uh, mm-hmm. energy either. Yeah, I mean, I just talked about Stanley Kubrick bullying Shelley Duvall on the set of The Shining for Oof. months, and she is a an adult woman, and there were other adults in the room when that was happening, so I can only imagine a child in that position who not only can't stand up for themselves and doesn't have, like, the recourse to stand up for themselves, but also, like, how would you as a child make sense of that, of this person who is supposed to be telling me how to do my job is harassing me, but I'm eight. Like, I I don't know what this means. I don't know what to do about this. And my mom or dad or parent keeps telling me, you have to keep going back because we have to make money. Right. I mean, there's no recourse. There's not, it's just not like built in the system. And then there's always that risk of getting fired Mm -hmm. and being a disappointment to your family and to yourself. And it takes so much to land the role. That's the last thing you want. So yeah, autonomy is not being cultivated. (laughs) In these situations no it is not and so I think that would be one thing to look at of if we were to change the the system or change the experience for children who are going into acting is how to instill a sense of autonomy mm-hmm. from the moment that they're in the industry yeah. or before yeah and I think what what comes to mind for me is like giving them space in life right Um, to be a kid or to have their identity outside of work. And, you know, I feel like just over the years you see snippets of like, how did you keep fame from getting to your head? And it's like, my mom treated me just like the other kids. Mm -hmm. Like I didn't get special treatment. Probably easier said than done. And in my mind, I'm thinking about like, okay, when they're not filming, you know, take a break between projects to go to summer camp. Yeah. Do what kids do. I don't know. We don't have kids. Uh, but uh, it's probably not really an option. I think there's a lot of value on momentum. And if, if you're hot, like you got to book that next role. Yeah. And you bring up the point of social media. Like when do you get a break and space to just be like the Stranger Things kid? That's such a normal thing, right? To share some gossip and like, yeah, you know, show off your the cool new thing that happened to you on your social. Like what? high school kid wouldn't do that but didn't work out so well right because of his status because it's not just your friends from high school following you on instagram it's half of the world right (laughs) right. or everyone who watches stranger things is aware of your internet presence yes and the person that you're posting about is not another kid at your high school it's doja cat yeah (laughs) internationally known (laughs) musical artist (laughs) sure Sure. <laughs> Which probably she could have her own episode at a later date, but we'll I'll do that. that. <laughs> um, yeah, and I like the point that you're bringing up about like giving kids like breaks. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that comes to like another point that we wanted to talk about was the pressure of being identified as like the breadwinner for families mm-hmm. 
And I think that this really played out a lot in the Britney Spears case, Oof. which I, I did an episode. I did two episodes on Britney Spears, if you want to go listen to those. But we could there's always more to talk about. But that was something that was very clear from her case or her experience was that she was making money for this family who was coming out of poverty and the pressure for her to keep working and to keep her family like to keep paying for their stuff and keep them on the payroll essentially was huge. She didn't really have an option to say, I can't do that anymore. Yes, totally. And that is not unique at all. And, um, you know, it takes a lot of, of cash in a lot of Mm -hmm. these families, especially if you're not coming from wealth, might have this idea and such as Britney Spears family, right? That this is going to be like a cash cow. My kid's cute. My kid's Mm -hmm. a hit in the community theater play. Like, (laughs) let's see where this can go. Mm -hmm. And um, then it becomes, it's a whole industry out here in LA, right? Mm -hmm. Of like coaching and these kids have all these talents that are on their, you know, (laughs) little resumes. I'm sure there's a catchy term for that. I think we both wanted to say CV, but (laughs) it's not. (laughs) New. Uh, Yeah, but you know, these kids are juggling and like learning all these extra tricks, dancing, gymnastics, like you got to be versatile, maybe some foreign languages, musical instruments, like someone's paying for that. And Mm -hmm. yeah, the turnaround on return of an investment is is not guaranteed. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there's all this time and money in and, you know, kids pick up on quiet messages and Mm -hmm. Some families may even be giving loud direct messages about how much money they've spent. And mm-hmm. you better not think you're quitting circus camp. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Bottom tier skill. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, but I, I think that's a good point that the difference between implicit and explicit messages are still picked up by children. Oh, yeah. And even children who are not famous are picking up on implicit ways that families talk about things like money. And so then when you add in the stakes of how much income can be made from starring in a movie or having a music career, it just is going to amplify those things that those kids are picking up on, especially if there's other siblings and it's clear that you're the only sibling that has this opportunity. Yeah. And without you, your little sister is going to starve or your little sister is not going to have clothes and shelter. Like that's a massive amplification of that message to the child. And it's a really, you know interesting there's maybe a paradox there right because the kid may be aware of money problems but then there's also like a limit to a Mm. kid's like practical knowledge of money in either direction like how much things actually cost um how much could a banana cost michael (laughs) ten (laughs) dollars yeah um like i i had a um wealthier aunt like not nothing crazy but she didn't have kids and so Mm. when I ever wanted like a more expensive like the my size Barbie or like (laughs) just something that my parents weren't gonna buy me it was like go ask Aunt Margaret and um so I got that in my head and then I'd start saying like I would like a sailboat for Christmas (laughs) I would like an island and everyone thought that was hilarious but I didn't get it I was (laughs) like what that's who I go to for my big ticket gift you know and I've got a bigger ticket this year (laughs) yeah exactly I did get a glass 
replica of a sailboat and then I decided to <laughs> scale down my request because yeah. it wasn't working out but uh you know so these kids like they also don't know there's like a lot of room for exploitation there whether or not it's conscious like a child doesn't realize how much money they've actually pulled in or even if they happen to know the dollar amount which often they wouldn't mm-hmm. they're not at the table for those negotiations they're not the ones signing mm-hmm. on the line uh, so they might not know and they might be having their accounts drained yeah. uh, by their parents who legally can do that when they are putting themselves on the payroll. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which is a brilliant transition into one of the articles that you found for us to read for this episode about dual relationships of parents and well, parents playing manager. Um, And I think this is a good thing for us to spend some time on because it does parallel some things that happen in like a therapist-client relationship that is important for us to talk about. But just what you're saying of like, if a parent is in charge of the money that a child is bringing in, they now have a financial interest and a caretaking interest over their child. And often those interests are going to be butting heads. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, right. So so and we talked about this. some. Um, so in as psychologists, there are pretty clear and strict ethical codes. And one of the strongest ones is about dual relationships. And, you know, we both uh, <laughs> lean towards attachment uh, yep. oriented psychology and um, which I'm sure has been covered. But, um <laughs> We won't go in depth on that right this second, but one idea is there is sort of a theme of like reparenting mm-hmm. or like rebuilding that bond and helping, you know, the therapist is not literally a parent, but does provide some of that support and unconditional warmth um, so that the typically adult client can can benefit from that. Mm-hmm. Um I digress. Uh, so in that like role of providing warmth and support as therapists and psychologists, we need to be very mindful of not taking on other roles. So usually that's referred to as dual roles mm-hmm. in our ethics code. And there's that idea of like uh, obviously not having like sexual or romantic relationships mm-hmm. with a client. But even beyond that, uh, I think the next biggest one after – no sex yeah. uh, is no financial relationships mm-hmm. and and that's like very clear and even smaller things like don't hire your client to do the landscaping in mm-hmm. your yard because it could get sticky and what if they don't think the fee is fair or you know it just it can compromise the therapeutic relationship mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so parents don't have like a strict code of ethics <laughs> they're not going to lose their license for having dual roles but I think maybe coming from this background where it's so drilled into our heads of why it can be so damaging to have a financial interest that could easily color the priority, which is giving care. Um, it makes it very troubling for me to think about parents having those dual roles, momagers, uh, <laughs> as that's uh, now a very popular concept, but like kind of a dark one too. Yeah. And, you know, when you say momager, the first thing that pops in my head is Chris Jenner, who's like archetype of momager. And I remember there there's probably still like discourse about this that pops up. But I remember on the original Keeping Up with the Kardashian show around because that 
popped off right after the time that um, Kim's sex tape came out. Not a coincidence. Not a coincidence. And there has been a lot of talk about how, like, Chris may have engineered all of that Mm. and may have coordinated when that got released and leveraged that to get all these shows and deals. And then one of the first seasons, Kim does the Playboy shoot where she didn't want to be nude Mm. and then is nude. Uh. And that's where that famous meme of you're doing amazing, sweetie, comes from, where Chris is, like, taking photos of Kim doing this photo shoot. And She's an adult. Kim is an adult in this scene and and this time of her life. But it's such a parallel to this relationship where it's like, if you're just a mom or just a parent, you're probably thinking, not a good idea for my child to have a sex tape that anyone knows about. And I want to like protect my child's privacy and protect my child's like dignity and, you know, their identity and all of this stuff. But if you're a manager, you're thinking, this is our hot meal ticket to stardom and they cannot exist at the same time. Those interests cannot exist at the same time. So, and I think that's just such a highlights the term momager of like that dynamic between Chris and Kim and and her other children of like, yeah, leveraging these things that are, could be deeply traumatic to a child or even to an adult child to make money. Totally. Yeah. That's, it's, troubling and you know rationalization is something else <laughs> we talk about a lot in the biz not showbiz but psychology biz <laughs> uh, a favorite defense mechanism and it's really easy even if you are I think most aspiring momagers parentagers uh people who hope that their kids might make it in the industry, (laughs) they start out and probably continue telling themselves, no, this is what my kid wants. Like this is, they're in in their best interest. If they ever want out, they're out. Um, But it's really easy to say that you're acting in their best interest with also being pulled in your own interests and mostly financial. And and what do they say? Fame's a hell of a drug. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, of like, what a classic trope of like child living out the dreams that the parent had. I think that comes up a lot in this area. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's the financial motivation and then just like the narcissistic extension Mm -hmm. of yourself. And like, maybe you wanted the attention and the glory. And now look at your beautiful child. And that's my baby. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's a lot. Um. Actually, this is making me think of a conversation I had with my brother over Thanksgiving because I he asked me, like, what's coming up on the podcast? And I was like, oh, I'm going to have Anna on to talk about child stars. And he was like, oh, like Honey Boo Boo. And then we were like, what has happened to Honey Boo Boo? Because, like, I haven't seen her since she was probably, like, 11 years old. So, of course, it went down a little deep dive on Google. Of course. And interestingly enough, she is in a relationship with a man. She's under 18 and he is over 18. So that's... Not a good combo, mm. um, as we've talked about before on this show. But she's not in contact with her mother anymore because Mama June was in a relationship with a man who was abusing her children. I think he oh. sexually abused one of the daughters. Mm-hmm. And so now they are on the run, Mama June and her partner. They're on the run because he's like wanted by the law for this. like. Ab- and I think oh, maybe another case. Still with him Ooh. and may have married him. Mm. Um, sources are not not clear on that, but that's also a case of like you know, Mama June clearly exploited her child for for financial reasons also. But 
even in a non-celebrity if we took out the the fame part and the toddlers and tiaras part like there's interests that mama june has that are directly opposite to her taking care of her children that her staying with this person who's abusing her children is obviously against the interest of taking care of them and so these dynamics can happen in regular families where fame is not an issue Mm. but then you add in the fact that like now honey boo boo i don't even know her real name like honey boo boo's life is on the internet on tv while all this like really dark stuff and traumatic stuff is happening in her home like there's there's just no way for her to get help from her mom if all of these interests are pulling for mama june's attention and she clearly made her decision about where she's going to go with that yeah such a great point that these issues can happen even in non-famous families and and also even within the child star world you know i think Chris Jenner and Mama June are like archetypes and mm-hmm. may seem extreme, but I don't, I, I'm sure there is a continuum. I think it's can still be pretty extreme and I can only imagine additional pressure in the less successful child stars mm-hmm. where their parents are still in this manager role and, but the money is not rolling in and the debts are racking up. Mm-hmm. That is typically not a recipe for happy home life Mm -mm, mm -mm. and talk about that pressure on the kids again you mentioned the study um so yeah so of course we had to put on our (laughs) academic hats and there are a lot of really great essays and documentaries on this topic that grace will link up but not as much academic research so stay tuned for (laughs) us to write up this episode um but we did find a rapport and maline 1998 article called childhood celebrity parental attachment and adult adjustment Mm. the young performer study so attachment again grace did you want to give a 30 second attachment (laughs) primer well let's have you do it because i've done it a hundred times (laughs) um essential for for uh, brevity's sake, we'll say like the quality of the bond um, in these early key relationships, um, typically between parent and child. And then the idea is that the um, child's sense of trust and security within that bond, I wouldn't say can make or break the rest of their life, but uh, <laughs> has, has an influence. Has influences. Yeah. And can make or break, but <laughs> has influences, can be repaired, um, earned go attachment, <laughs> go to therapy, please. Um, but yes, these early attachment relationships um, with the core caregivers typically set patterns in how the child feels in terms of safety and interactions with all other relationships Mm -hmm. um, throughout Mm -hmm. their life. And if it is problematic, um, some, a reparative relationship is needed in order to rebuild that, what we call secure attachment, um, where you feel like you can trust other people. Mm -hmm. So childhood celebrity, as we're calling child stars, (laughs) parental attachment and adult adjustment. So I think the term like well-adjusted is pretty common, but just basically how you adjust to adulthood mm-hmm. after being a child celebrity is what this young performer study was looking at. Mm-hmm. And unsurprisingly, as adults, former young performers whose parents served as their professional managers viewed their mothers as less caring and more over-controlling than did performers whose parents were not their managers. Mm-hmm. 
other factors that affected the quality of parent-child relationship, again, as adults, included dissatisfaction with money management, Mm -hmm. poor peer support, and the perception that their involvement in acting was determined by others. So there goes that autonomy Mm -hmm. issue. Right. Um, And when there was a higher quality parent-child relationship that had positive effects on adult adjustment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so really showing that the importance of the, the, not just like having the parent be involved, but like the quality of the parent, and when those dual roles were activated, it was worse outcomes for the child and how they saw their parent, which is going to impact the relationship you develop with your parent. If you see your parent as over-controlling, you're not going to be in, as invested in developing a relationship with them into adulthood. And that is often one of the like biggest I guess like roles or jobs of adulthood is how your relationship to your caregiver shifts because in attachment world as children our primary attachment figures are whoever takes care of us whether it's a parent grandparent foster parent whoever is like meeting this that's our primary attachment but when we move into adulthood our primary attachment figures become our romantic partners sometimes friends but it's, it's typically romantic partners and that need for the parent to fulfill that role dissipates and so we have to figure out as adult children how do we relate to our parents now that we no longer get our main attachment needs from them and we're shifting into our adult attachment life and that's part of the adjustment too is like how do I now relate to my parents and if I was growing up with parents that I perceived to be always on top of me not allowing me to make decisions maybe mishandling my money I'm not going to resolve that question well when I move into adulthood sure and yeah and I think again you know so many of the things we've talked about it's like yeah this happens even in like non-famous circles too but when you feel tightly controlled you know and maybe mad resentful (laughs) um my peers who had those kind of dynamics with their parents were the ones who were drinking vodka out of plastic (laughs) water bottles that they hid in their closets more frequently um than those who had better <laughs> dynamics with their parents. Um, so just to say, like, when we see some of these train wrecks, quote unquote, like mm-hmm. that could be normative rebellion to mm. these um, really challenging dynamics. We just see it on, you know, front page headlines in a way that is not for non-famous kids. Yeah. And this always makes me think of Miley Cyrus when we talk about this, like, transition into adulthood. Um, I think Miley Cyrus is probably my, like, favorite child star into adult star. I've just been, like, fascinated by her. I think she's a fantastic artist. Um, And I, like, grew up watching Hannah Montana. So I think I have a, you know, particular attachment to her. But I just think of that um, Vanity Fair spread she did when she was, like, coming out of Disney Channel like the show had ended she was starting to transition into like adulthood and what her music career was going to look like and she did this Vanity Fair shoot with Annie Leibovitz who is like an amazing photographer and one of the photos Miley Cyrus is like nude in a bed but she has like a sheet over her and it's really quite artistic obviously it's a Vanity Fair so it's not supposed to be like smutty it's (laughs) it's like an art piece but people absolutely lost their minds and she was a slut a whore, a bad kid, her dad had failed, her mom had failed, and everyone blamed Billy Ray Cyrus because he had also been a young adult star. Mm. And it just like became this dynamic of 
Miley Cyrus is to blame for all of our children having ideas about sexuality. And, you know, she is a bad person because she did this thing. And I've also heard glimmers that her relationship with her parents was maybe not the best, Mm. given that her father had this pressure to live out his dreams through his daughter as a one hit wonder. Billy Ray Cyrus, a one-hit wonder? Achy Breaky Heart, baby. That's really it. Oh, wow. I'm not okay. counting the I'm not okay. counting the remix of Old Town Road he did Lil Nas X. Oh, wow. Um my knowledge of country music is so minimal that I I <laughs> deign to speak on this, but I mean he's just it's just a name I've heard for my entire <laughs> life. So I thought BRC was more established but i guess half of my life i've been hearing about him as miley's dad so you might be onto something more research is needed (laughs) we're copywriting this for our article nobody steal this idea (laughs) interesting yeah and i think that's um you know when we do our formal latent growth mixture modeling uh analysis of these different pathways that is a theme too like like we were talking about drew barrymore of like parents that already have some fame and Mm -hmm. lately there's been a lot of buzz about um like kids getting the leg up Mm -hmm. right and like hollywood um legacy legacies what's that word though like we're not nepotism nepotism (laughs) that word (laughs) that one um with i think it's uh maybe a deaf child on the runway and she's like five three Mm -hmm. and it's most of the time you're a little taller if you're a runway model but hey shoot your shot really gross you know um and and that's discussed a lot right of like would these kids be famous in their own right probably sucks for these kids too because you'll never know and you'll always have haters uh and critics saying that you're not that good and you're only here because of who your parents Mm -hmm. are um and who knows if if you actually want to be doing this or if this is, again, that narcissistic extension mm-hmm. from your parent. Mm-hmm. Of This is what we do. We do. Because I didn't get to finish my goals as a child star or a, or a celebrity. And so you get to carry on the rest of the family. Yeah. And even if you, you did establish yourself, right? Then I, I hear Hollywood is fickle and <laughs> and things change and you want to keep your your income coming keep Mm -hmm. keep yourself secure yeah big big questions all around but I think that is a good kind of summary of the way that this this article talked about and this bigger idea of dual relationships where taking on another hat as manager can really have some effects on the attachment your child has to you and I think Mm -hmm. that is something for parents who either their kids are asking to be in the industry or you know, wanting to help their kids get into it for parents to consider that of if I'm going to put on this hat and not outsource this job to, you know, like someone who's professional and outside of our family, what effect is that going to have on not only my child, but our relationship? Mm, Totally. And I just did an episode on Mommy Dearest where Christina Crawford is like, my mom was horrible. Mm. And the other kids are like, no, she wasn't. And it's like, there's a lot, (laughs) there's a lot going on there. Um, and like Joan Crawford's own celebrity and like desire to have her kids represent her legacy Oof. really impacted how she related to each of her children. 
can I say narcissistic extension yes. one more time? Or do we have like a bingo card going for our listeners at home? Is this our first drinking game episode? Ooh, <laughs> won't be our last. Um, something, oh, so many thoughts on that. Of Just like, you know, my casual obsession with birth order. Mm, mm-hmm. And there is a saying that I actually don't know who said, um, but someone in the psychology world that um, no child is raised in the same family, mm, mm-hmm. you know, because you're, you know, chronologically speaking, maybe, maybe the older sibling, the family is struggling when they're born. And then the younger sibling, they're more financially secure, a thousand different factors, mm-hmm. just being the baby, being the oldest, what those implications are. Um, but thinking about showbiz families, I recently read a profile on Noah Cyrus, actually, oh. Miley's lesser known sister. Mm-hmm. Um, we actually talked about doing this article before Aaron Carter's untimely death. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But then, of course, that came to mind uh, once we were doing the prep and, and he, he did die. Um, he was nine years old when his big hit single came out mm. but his brother of course had already been established as a backstreet boy so mm. questions such as would he have had a hit signal come out had his brother not been a backstreet yeah. boy what's it like to be the little brother you know i think when i was most of my life <laughs> i thought it would be like the coolest thing to have a twin sister like, oh. share loves just like have a twin i mean yeah. also full house generation so oh yeah cut it out <laughs> cut it out uh like could anything be cooler than having a twin you know. mary kate or <laughs> ashley olsen um and then now as an adult I, I just think about what a struggle it would be to have twin children and like promote healthy differentiation mm-hmm. and I, I think especially for girls but maybe all around like there's always going to be like the hot one mm. and like you're just always directly compared the funny one um and what a pressure that is mm-hmm. so i imagine in these famous families um you do hear about a lot of pressure in some of these these families including the carters including the culkins um kieran culkin if you're listening big fan <laughs> uh, love succession love succession love you um <laughs> Where basically one kid gets in big and then there's like a huge push of like, can we get all the kids in? Ooh, maybe mm-hmm. we can have this kid play the little sibling on an episode. Um, hopefully Grace will have me back to talk about Real Housewives someday, even though she <laughs> doesn't watch it. Um, but House of Hilton, the book about oh. Big Kathy, um, the mom of uh, the middle-aged women generation of hilton's including kyle hilton of real housewives of beverly hills um her sister kim Mm. and then her sister kathy which you know we're all about taking down gender expectations but it is not the most common thing to name your daughter after you Mm -hmm. as a woman so (laughs) more on that (laughs) um and then of course little kathy is the mother to paris hilton Mm -hmm. Um, but Big Kathy, according to the book House of Hilton, was explicit about using her children as a income source, oh. uh, and you know was very explicit about telling her children to marry rich and mm. you know marry people who can extend your career and wealth. And uh, at least the two younger ones were child stars, mm-hmm. um, and 
you know, kind of played off of each other's success and had some issues later on. Yeah, which plays out on Real Housewives. Yes, <laughs> thankfully. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, Paris Hilton now is like the spokesperson for the troubled teen industry, which is mm. a whole nother episode that could Please. be done. But like really does show how the like kind of intergenerational messages about fame and messages about how you're supposed to ha- behave get passed down and to the point where Paris was seen as too inconvenient. She was too totally. troubled, too out of control and had to be sent away so that the family's image wouldn't be damaged. And kind of going back to your point about sinking money in, you know, how much money is, they're the Hiltons. I know they don't need to make their investment back, but they're sinking all this money into you going to rehab and getting you out of jail and sending you to, you know, these like crazy boarding schools in the middle of Utah. There's going to put an additional pressure on that child to perform better the next time because you've already sunk so many resources from this family. Right. Right, exactly. And, you know, on the smaller scale of like fledgling uh, child stars, Mm -hmm. we were talking about that too, of just like how much money goes in to this industry and the kids awareness of that and the pressure that comes along with that. Interestingly, on the note of Paris, uh, it has been commented that Big Kathy, her grandma was still alive, like through her teen years and through Mm -hmm. then that maybe there was some pressure even on that next generation leading to things like the simple life a simple life that show where paris went to the farm yeah paris and nicole would do 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 regular people jobs yes what a fantastic show good times (laughs) um yeah like the that pressure i think is still there and i think to your just like broader point about like would these children have, have even been in this position if their parents and grandparents hadn't been in the industry like we don't know and i think that just keeps coming back to the idea of autonomy of Paris Hilton was never going to make get, going to get to make a choice about what her career looked like. Hmm. There, it was not in the stars for her to have an opinion about what she was going to do with her life. It had been decided essentially by her grandmother, um, and that's why, like, I love her cooking show that she did on YouTube for like two seconds huh. because it's like maybe that's something she wants to do. And a lot of the feedback I would see online would be like, "It's bad. She's boring. Oh, wow. She's not a good cook." And it's like, well, did you expect her to have those skills? It's also a YouTube show, guys. Like, it's clearly for entertainment. Um, But, like, you know, I don't know Paris Hilton's internal world. I I hope that it's okay and she's doing well. But I would love to know, Paris, if you are listening. (laughs) Email us, (laughs) psychmindedpod at gmail.com. Happy to work with you. Um, But, like, like, I would imagine that Paris didn't get the opportunity to explore internally and externally what her life is going to look like. And I would say even for these fledgling child stars or the rise of social media child stars Mm. not a lot of opportunity to explore autonomy even if your family isn't a legacy family totally yeah i would like to touch on another point um, before we move on to kind of talking about normal normative development in teens because i think that's something that we should highlight in this episode yes um but one point that i wanted to bring up was about kind of like surveillance or evaluation of child stars or critique um and i've talked about this in the episode i did on pick me girls the tiktok trend about like internet surveillance and how teens are like able to always be watching each other and always critiquing each other's behavior 
But when we escalate it to like the child star star world, even before social media, child stars were under an incredible amount of like observation and attention from the public. And like, of course, Britney is the classic example of paparazzi following her everywhere. Paparazzi counting down to the date she turned 18. I was just thinking about that. And like her contemporaries too, Lindsay Lohan, Paris, the Olsen twins, Olsen all twins. of those like countdown to age 18. Gross. All those like 90s, like late 80s, early 90s child stars, all of the girls seem to have that like countdown. Ugh. And I can't imagine as someone who was a teen girl at one point in my life. I can't imagine having all of those eyes on me waiting for my body to change, waiting for me to be legally able to have sex, even if I'm not mentally and emotionally ready. Because I'm going to guess that child stars are not at the same level as their peers in terms of like sexual and emotional development. So they may be ahead, they may be behind, but either way, it's not the day you turn 18 that your like development is finished. Um, and so just this idea of like surveillance and an evaluation, I think, is another factor that makes it so difficult for child stars and leads to some of the burnout that we see, because you cannot sustain that much evaluation from people you don't know without getting to like say your side of the story or even just have a moment to be yourself without their constantly being critique. <laughs> yeah. And like you mentioned, it's pretty normal these days with... um you know, non-famous high school kids, middle school kids, young kids yeah. now have smartphones. <laughs> but you you mentioned like keyword, like critique of your peers. And again, as a recovering teen, former teen girl, um, <laughs> like everything was such a big deal. You're on such a microscope, even pre-social media um, when we were coming up. And I've often thought, again, as a non-famous kid, like how much worse that would be if like, not only do you have to deal with this scrutiny if you're cool enough, if you're cute enough at school, but now it follows you home, mm-hmm. you know, 24-7 via the internet. And But it's your peers, right? Mm-hmm. It's Someone's calling the police, hopefully, if, like, adults are getting in on the action. Uh, but for some reason, if you're famous, adults creepily feel like they have some kind of right to comment on your physical appearance, your perceived personality, and like, how does anyone know your brand? Like, it might not be how you really are. I think sometimes we weirdly conflate the characters people Mm. play with Mm -hmm. who they are. And people who play like a villain get a lot of hate, which is, I mean, like, unfortunate confusing (laughs) but also leaves a mark Mm -hmm. you know and even some of these kids uh who grew up pre-social media world as it is now would talk about what it was like to like read a bad review of Mm -hmm. themselves Mm -hmm. as a kid and it really hurt Mm -hmm. sure i'm sure it hurts adults too but ideally these adults have developed these like coping resources throughout their opportunity to have more normal development but as a kid you don't and maybe your momager or whoever is just as upset as you are um so you don't really have that space to have your own reaction to it Mm -hmm. oh yeah like not being able to process it as an individual but it getting wrapped up in your parents reaction or the whole family's reaction you know who else whoever else is is involved in that reaction to a review yeah You know, and, like, physically speaking, like, the awkward phase is, I think, universal. 
Like, I don't (laughs) – even the cutest kids who become very attractive adults, there's a rough patch. It's it's the tax we have to pay. It's it's part of life. But if your whole thing is is how cute you are, your whole worth, and everyone – seems to think that they're entitled to an opinion that they share about you that's Mm -hmm. very brutal to be in the public eye for that awkward phase i i imagine oh you know again as recovering teen girls like (laughs) there were times during puberty or you know just like adolescence in general when it's like i wouldn't want anyone looking at my body or having an opinion about how i talk or what i have to say and these child stars i really like the point you brought up about getting conflated with their characters Mm. Um, of like the assumption being that if they play a character who's maybe sexually promiscuous, then they themselves are that. And so adults can assume that about them, that they're more promiscuous. Or if they play roles of like traumatized children, then believing that like they're victims inherently because they played this character. Um, and I, I have been, I think of Millie Bobby Brown a lot as we have this conversation, because I think she's going to be the archetype of how child stars are conceptualized in like the this age of Hmm. social media because she went into stranger things at 11 she she may have been 10 when she started but she was very young and there's like memes online where people edit photos of her saying horrible things like anti-semitic things or homophobic things and that's just like a funny thing people do with pictures of this like child you're you're quoting funny yeah (laughs) way i don't think that it's funny but like Uh, this is it's not even just that like her life is being surveilled and people have definitely been counting down to when she turns 18 yeah i mean that's still happening drake was counting down allegedly Mm. (laughs) so it's it's not even just the regular surveillance that other child stars went through but just like having your entire image be a joke and a meme i can't imagine what that would do to like your your sense of yourself or or like resiliency to bounce back from things like that oh yeah and again like who are your supports Mm. sometimes you know we're not gonna make some sweeping generalization some child stars probably do have a wealth of supports yeah others do not and you if you were a successful child star and you have an onset tutor for a couple hours a day um, maybe there's other kids on your production. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's not. You don't have like the opportunity to develop these like close peer friendships, a typical project of development. Mm-hmm. You know, depending on family dynamics, we've talked a lot about the parent thing, but there can also be some strange estrangement and just strange dynamics that occur between siblings, right? Mm-hmm. If if you're the famous sibling and you're getting all the family resources and parental attention, that's going to lead to some strained relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, so who do you go to when you're feel- facing media scrutiny or feeling bad? I mean, maybe this is the time for us to start a support group for <laughs> child stars to talk to each other. Email but yeah, us if you're interested <laughs> in joining our child star support group, we're ready for you. Wait list is open. <laughs> Just need two people to start a group. <laughs> She's not wrong. (laughs) Not wrong. And I think something else, you know, so we were talking about like the social media criticism, but I think, and again, this happens in non-famous circles too. And and sometimes it's well-meaning people that have that like look on the bright side attitude and the dark side of that look on the bright side attitude is it can be really invalidating and Mm. leave no space 
for you to have your feelings and kind of tell you you're wrong to be feeling this way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I imagine if things are going well and you're in a high point of your career, there's not a lot of space to say, I feel bad. I mm-hmm. feel sad. What are you talking about? You're famous. Everybody loves you. Yeah. People don't know me. How would people love me? I don't feel happy. Yeah. For whatever reason. Yeah. When your internal experiences that match what people are telling you, it looks like it's happening to you. That causes a lot of like confusion and distress. And then you're right. It shuts down any avenue to share that feeling mm-hmm. of if if when I try to share what I'm feeling, people tell me that I'm wrong or I shouldn't feel that way, then I must be wrong. So I won't share my feelings in the future. And that just reinforces that pattern. And it becomes harder and harder to share what you're going through. And so it's not surprising when we see the quote unquote train wreck pathway that ends in substance use or overdoses or self-harm in that this is a, a essentially a child who didn't have any outlet. It's going to come out behaviorally totally. and feel out of control. Right. And, and we talked about that as like a, you know, very understandable rebellion of as a response to all this constriction and this tight, tight you know, regulation of how you have to be for so many years. And then, ah, here I go. Um, But I wonder if there's also like a see me, um, Mm. a desire to express this pain or express just, I'm not who you think I am or say I am. And I'm going to show you something very different when Mm -hmm. we see these train wrecks. Yeah. And I I think both of us try to shy away from language like cry for attention or manipulation because (laughs) (laughs) Um, because like both from an attachment perspective and from other modalities that you and I both have learned and and implement, like behavior has function and understanding Mm -hmm. the function of the behavior and that often behavior that appears to be manipulative is not intended to be manipulative, but has been reinforced and so is more likely to happen again. And so I think that it's important to keep that in mind that, and from an attachment perspective, behavior tells us a lot about what the person's attachment is, right? Whether they're pushing away, which leads more toward avoidant, or trying to pull to cling closer, more of an anxious or in the middle, (laughs) more secure. And when you like start to understand that, then it makes it easier to have like compassion and empathy for child stars who are going through those behaviors. And instead of saying like, oh, well, they're just a drug addict, you can have some understanding of like maybe where that behavior came from and what function does it serves. And not just for child stars, for anyone, right? That's how we should be be looking at behavior. And I think maybe my little like soapbox moment would be to take that language of cry for attention or manipulative out of your lexicon because we can't know if someone is manipulating us, right? We can't make that assumption about their behavior, particularly if they're just someone on a screen that we've never met. It's just such a funny idea to me of like even the idea of calling anyone who's already famous, calling any of their behavior as a cry for attention (laughs) because they've already got so much attention, right? Like that might be the last thing they want. Um, Yeah. But we still throw that label out there and it's like maybe a different Maybe what they are hoping for is a different type of attention or to just like maybe liberate themselves from this yeah. role or this idea that is there of, of who they are. Um, 
or maybe it is simply a nervous breakdown due to all these decades of pressure and stress. Little column A, little column B. Little A, little B, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. So in, in the context of like being constantly observed, going through a very difficult job where you're working multiple hours of day, these kids are still going through development. And when I think of childhood development, I always think of our best bud, Eric Erickson, of course, and his classic, um, what does he call them? Conflicts or crises? Due to my strengths-based perspective, I like to keep calling them projects or milestones, <laughs> but they are conflicts or crises. It's like the this versus that. Right, right. I yeah. like projects. Maybe I'm gonna right. I'm gonna steal that. Um, but like Eric Erickson was a you know a developmental psychologist who essentially identified that at different stages of life we have different conflicts or projects that we have to accomplish to be able to move our ego onto like the next step. And some people, go ahead. I think you looked it he up. He <laughs> did call them crises and. Fun fact: He coined the phrase "identity crisis." Wow! I mean, I think I need to learn more about Eric Erickson. I just only know the list of, of crises. But if we think about like kind of the age where a lot of these kids are at, because I feel like there's not many child stars who are like that we know of that are babies. You know what I mean? Like babies don't have to have a Twitter account. Obviously, Mary Kate and Ashley do, were. Though. Do you ever see those like toddlers' Instagrams, like run by their parent, and not just famous toddlers? <laughs> Another episode. Okay, <laughs> put a pan in that. But like, you know, if we think of some of these classic examples, like Drew Barrymore, you know, was probably like school aged by the time she really takes off, right? Like five or six in ET. Oh, she was pretty young in ET, but maybe approaching kindergarten. Yeah, approaching like school age, which is a, a it's separate like identity crisis in, in Erickson's model. Mm. And a lot of the two main ones that I think are going to come up for child stars are it's like autonomy versus control and identity. I don't know what the versus is, but like school age children are trying to figure out like, how do I differentiate myself from my parents? And now I have responsibilities at school and I'm in this stage where I'm gaining independence how do I manage my independence? And teenagers are like, how do I now take that independence I fostered as a child and figure out how I relate to other people who are not just my family and figure out my identity? Right. Um, and Erickson names that adolescent challenge as identity versus role confusion. And role confusion. Interestingly, even in his initial language, like, yes, it is framed as like verses and can be viewed as a challenge, but it's also an achievement, right? Mm -hmm. So the successful resolution of this phase of development is going for um, identity, <laughs> achieving identity versus being stuck in role confusion. Yeah. And so if we think of, you know, any number of the child stars that we've mentioned, moving into adolescence, how do you resolve the project of role confusion when you're one acting and so taking on different roles every day whole job is role confusion yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like two maybe didn't accomplish the other developmental milestones in erickson's model because of the nature of the industry so can't don't even have the capacity to figure out identity versus role confusion and are now being like evaluated surveilled observed by all of these people regular teenagers who are not famous get to be messy and make mistakes as they figure out that identity and famous teenagers don't get to be messy in that part 
It's a really good point. But, you know, I did also get a little bit down the Eric Erickson Wikipedia rabbit hole um, after we got on the topic. And interestingly enough, right, the very first phase of infancy, the project um, is basic trust versus basic mistrust. Mm. Hashtag attachment. <laughs> uh, and then one and a half to three years old, which is sometimes when when these kids get their earliest mm. start. You know, Mary-Kate and Ashley were a little tiny baby, mm -hmm. as Michelle Tanner mm -hmm. and others, I'm sure. <laughs> um, autonomy versus shame. So that's like that no phase, right? Mm -hmm. um, what a challenge when you're literally like taking direction um, at that age. Yeah. And not you don't get to say no. No. Yeah. And Erickson like conceptualized that the opposite of, of not having autonomy would be to feel shameful about yes. your wants and desires. And so if you are a child star that started like Michelle Tanner, <laughs> you know, at infancy, essentially, and you well maybe haven't resolved trust or you, you don't have trust in the world around you, and then you're coming into toddlerhood where you're supposed to be able to run around and, you know, knock things off the table. I'm describing my cats, but, <laughs> like, you know, be, be an unregulated two-year-old and just like having having it out, right? Figuring out the world and then being told you have to sit still and you have to stand there when we tell you to and you have to be on when the camera is on. And yeah, you and your sister are switching out, but you're being told what to do essentially the whole time. Oh, talk about that twin confusion again, like you and your sister are interchangeable as one person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you're two. You don't really know. You maybe think you're Michelle, like you, you might think you're Michelle. Um, and so then when you fail that crisis or have the maladaptive response to that crisis it's shame and it's to feel like i can't assert myself in the world the world cannot be controlled by me whatever i want or desire or need is not as important as everyone around me and imagine going through your entire life at two years old ending up in the shame part of that that project carrying that through your entire life that's going to affect every relationship that you have and every decision that you make oh yeah and and the language might not that be that clear. Mm -hmm. um, so it's more of just this like confusion and feeling of voicelessness that you can't put language to, which I think is even harder mm -hmm. and more difficult to address, mm -hmm. right? Because if you could just say out loud, I feel like I don't have control in my life. <laughs> I don't have a voice. You know, hopefully some well-meaning adult or peer could say, hey, yeah, you do. Why don't you pick? the game we play next and that could be reparative right but yeah. instead it's just this like deeply internalized um sadness mm -hmm. and can't play itself out and does play itself out in just resignation mm -hmm. in relationships in decisions and i think of you had brought up earlier when we were prepping the story of like evan rachel wood yes and if anyone has been kind of following i guess the focus on abusers in the wake of me too the focus on like johnny depp and yeah even before that it came up when like me too started off yeah. she actually testified about um me I, I don't know if it was harvey weinstein or not but but she did testify as part of like the big me too yeah push um, but now we're in the backlash which means marilyn manson is potentially preparing a lawsuit against her for her statements about him which is absolutely disgusting Woof. but another <laughs> another topic but you were telling me about her experience and seeing some parallels between her experience as a child and then unfortunately 
being a victim of like domestic and sexual violence as an adult. Yes. So, and I hadn't really put the pieces together. It turns out Evan, Rachel Wood and I are exactly the same age, which is interesting (laughs) because I remember being in like mm, late elementary school, like maybe like fifth grade or so. And like Marilyn Manson was so cool. And Mm. like some of my friends even thought he was sexy, which I don't (laughs) see myself, but you know, very edgy. And so, and also a huge age gap between him Mm -hmm. and Evan Rachel Wood. So I wonder, you know, about that dynamic, but I knew that. And then the movie 13, which was when her fame really exploded. uh, She was 14 when she filmed 13. I was a teenager when it came out. And that movie was so controversial. Teen sex, drugs, you know, um, chaos. And probably was quite a lot psychologically to star in that movie, Mm -hmm. um, both just in terms of the content and then also huge backlash uh, and also explosive fame. And now everyone recognizes you. And then again, maybe confuses who you are as a person with who mm-hmm. your wild teen character was in that film. But what I did not know about Evan Rachel Wood until recently was that she was from a, a theatrical family who um, she she actually put it in her own words. It's like, I was bred for theater. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and so there was like all of the kids were kind of like pushed and encouraged to get into the showbiz world. And she really had a knack for it. And even before 13 was a working actor and booking jobs and speaks very thoughtfully about it now as an adult of like, I think I just wanted to play, but it was kind of an unspoken but clear vibe she used the word vibe which I loved uh in my family of like if I had chosen not to act what a waste it would be what a shame because I did show that talent so she just kept going um and we know as adults and as children like how praise is a hell of a drug Mm -hmm. and if you know, especially from our attachment figures. And mm-hmm. if your parents are really, really happy when you do what they want, like it feels good and you want to keep doing it, even if it's not what you want to do. And so learning that about her childhood in the context of what ended up being a horribly abusive relationship <sighs> yeah. with the older and famous and powerful mm-hmm. individual uh, made me really think about that. Like, pathway to compliance Mm -hmm. and obedience um even you know in the context of not having that like normal development opportunity of building up resources and supports outside of the acting world and outside of your identity as a famous person or a working actor yeah and I think that like example of Evan Rachel Wood really highlights pretty much everything we've talked about of like Maybe even though it wasn't always explicit in her family, but an implicit lack of autonomy, some isolation and like this is your community. You only do acting. You don't have peers that are in any other like field or any other perspective. Mm -hmm. And then going through the identity role confusion part of your life with people literally confusing you for a child's like a a child character and making assumptions about your behavior carrying that all the way into adulthood it becomes a vulnerability for maybe being like preyed upon or like I want us to be clear that like 
all of the blame is on Marilyn Manson, right? That it's not that Evan Rachel Wood deserves this or pulled this upon her in any way, but it helps us to understand how people can become vulnerable to these kinds of things. And this is possible if you're not a celebrity, right? Like these types of dynamics play out for everyone. So I think that's important to highlight. Um, But just to see, like, if you spend all of your childhood, like being ingrained in being a people pleaser or having to say yes and be compliant and obedient, you don't just stop doing that the day you turn 18 and move out. That is going to carry with you. (laughs) Right. Like literally your job, your success is on how well you take direction, Mm -hmm. how well you contort yourself to the expectation of you. (laughs) famous or not famous but like for the famous kids that is literally their job yeah you know my knowledge of evan rachel wood's childhood started with um a documentary called showbiz kids that we will link to but very interesting for those who um want to know more about the pitfalls of child stardom but she actually stated in in her interview in that movie like as she got more famous my voice just got quieter and quieter. Mm. And I thought that was so heartbreaking, that paradox of like your presence, your public presence is just getting louder and you're getting more known, but then your individual voice is just getting Mm. erased by Mm. like your celebrity. And that's really sad. Yeah. And such a like powerful representation of that process of like literally feeling quiet and like no one can hear you Mm -hmm. when you're trying to even just make simple requests or just shape your your fate in some way no one is hearing you oh and isn't there something in the the marilyn manson lawsuits of her and others right where he had like a a torture room like with uh, some kind of like creepy and soundproof room where he would take women so talk about silencing right and again no victim blaming going on here. But when we talk about these patterns, sometimes attachment patterns coming from our early experiences, they get replicated until they're interrupted. So when voicelessness becomes the norm, it's difficult to break out of that. And I, I've talked you know, many times about domestic violence on the show and uh, we'll continue to talk about it because it's so important. But that's the one of the first things that perpetrators will do is to isolate you and Ugh. remove your ability to assert yourself or feel in control. And based on the little and alleged information I have read about Marilyn Manson, he was an expert in isolating and cutting off those opportunities for his victims to feel a sense of autonomy or feel a sense of I can I can go and be safe if I try to leave the situation. And that's just like <sighs> textbook DV, right? Like even if you're not famous, like that's just textbook what perpetrators are trying to do. Um, and I just, you know, again, to wrap it into Evan Rachel Wood's experience. And this is coming from her own words, right? Like we're not making assumptions. She has said this, that this was her experience. Yes. Um, it's not like a diagnosis of her, but an understanding of when these things happen to us in childhood, they do last with us. And it doesn't have to be our fate, right? We can get help. Mm. We can go to therapy. (laughs) You can come to our support group that we've decided to start. (laughs) Coming soon. You can, you know, get supportive relationships and have reparative attachment experiences with people that are not therapists, right? Maybe romantic partners or, or really close friends or mentors. There are ways to repair the damage done in childhood. So I hope that this doesn't sound too doom and gloom, but that there are so many opportunities to repair 
Um, and it's not your fault if you haven't been able to find them on your own. And that's oh, yeah. when therapy is so, 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 so recommended and such a good tool because your therapist can help you identify ways to be safe, to seek out safe people and develop relationships that become reparative for your attachment. I love that, Grace. Um, that's so important. And uh, maybe we'll shift some things around in post-production, but I did have a thought um, on a darker note, if I may. <laughs> yes. Yin and yang. <laughs> uh, so, you know, obviously I too am well-versed in domestic violence and mm -hmm. IPB and these like very troubling kind of themes that happen regularly where it doesn't just typically doesn't just start out that someone is just getting, you know, right. physically pummeled, but there's these um, kind of coercive steps along the way. And the first one that we always think about is isolation. Mm -hmm. Also a very common experience for child stars. And mm -hmm. I actually think when, when I first broached this topic, I was actually thinking about child sexual abuse in Hollywood, which mm. perhaps will be a topic for <laughs> another day, but it's rampant, right? Yeah. And especially among boys. And um, one of the theories about how it is so uh, unchecked is all of this isolation where these kids, these predators have access to mm. kids without parents present. There's all sorts of ways that that can be justified within just oh, going to work and, mm -hmm. you know, or they appear to be trusted mentors to gain access and grooming processes. And again, for another day, but I, I do think that this idea of isolation is very common. Mm -hmm. um, and even for kids who um, may not be experiencing physical or sexual abuse, the isolation of the experience can can be very emotionally painful, mm -hmm. just not getting to be around other kids. Yeah. And that, I mean, maybe even could morph into like emotional abuse if they're isolated and not not able to get support from anyone else or emotional neglect, right? If they're yes. completely left alone. And that is a good point that I think is interesting to highlight across all types of abuse that isolation plays a big role, whether you're an adult, a child, whether the type of abuse, I mean, even things like you know, if we're just talking straight physical abuse of like assault and, you know, hitting or, you know, hurting in some way, that often has to happen in isolation. Mm. Because if, you know, you're walking down the street and seeing someone assault someone else, someone's going to call the police. Like this is out in the open. The hope, <laughs> fingers crossed, is that, you know, there's eyes on this. This will get help. So that can be a way that even if there is no sexual abuse, children are isolated and, and encounter physical abuse or adults in abusive relationships and it's just part of the process of essentially gaslighting you into saying that this is okay this is what it means to be loved or this is what it means to be cared for as a child because i don't have anyone else to compare this to i'm isolated mm. i can't tell anyone else because the second you were to tell someone else they'd go no that's not what my parents do of course not that's not what my boyfriend does or that's not how someone treats me yeah. and so that isolation is just so crucial um, and even if the child star is not being abused, the isolation is crucial to keep them in the industry because yes. once they get a flavor of what it's like to be a regular kid, it's a wide open world, right? Yes. And they may not want to continue to be a star if they know what it's like to be regular or to, you know, lessen their load or that isolation is crucial to keep them in the industry as well. Totally. And unfortunately, even I think for kids whose parents do their best to try to facilitate some semblance of a normal life for child their child star offspring uh 
it's not that easy because if you then get put into public school or mm-hmm. your local, you know, private school for non-actors, <laughs> uh, but other children of privilege, you're still famous. Like the mm-hmm. kids, there's still some isolation that you are different and these other kids are not just going to look at you as one of them. You're going to be Michelle Tanner or uh actual child <laughs> uh, not a woman in her mid-30s anymore uh you know i don't i don't even know who are, who are the child like characters these days i don't know like okay <laughs> i keep thinking like moana but <laughs> i think she's a cartoon i don't know i carly is back again i don't know <laughs> <laughs> anyway um even if you're not being viewed as your character, right? Like you show up at your elementary school or middle school, mm-hmm. you can't hide the fact that you are a celebrity mm-hmm. and there's all these assumptions about who you are and what that means. And it is isolating. Sometimes they say like you can feel the most lonely in a room full of people. And if you're just different um, and the kids think you can't understand them or like you don't have problems because – you're probably rich and happy all the time and getting all this attention. Kids can be pretty mean. Mm -hmm. Uh, And maybe if the kids are being nice, then you're questioning, are they being nice because they want to be my friend and they Mm -hmm. are my friend or because they think I'm going to take them to the Kids' Choice Awards? That's still a thing. I think it is. (laughs) Where you get slimed? Probably. You would think COVID would have ruined all award shows, but I think they're still out there sliming. (laughs) I haven't been a kid in a while. This episode is really, really hammering home for me. A lot of touch. We'll do an aging episode in a few weeks. Um, yeah, but I think that's a good point. That even if we identify that isolation is the problem, there's not an easy solution mm. for that. Um, and so well I think said. that can help to have some to some compassion, some grace for parents who have a child star of that. It's not as simple as just like we'll put your kid back in public school and they'll you know, have friends. It's not a guarantee and it's a a tricky, tricky situation to navigate. And I don't know if my takeaway at the end of this episode is like cancel all child stars and there should never be a child actor again. It would be difficult. It would be difficult. And I think that there are some kids who they like acting. And interestingly, even Macaulay Culkin himself, who is estranged (laughs) from his dadager and you know went through the ringer after his mess rise to fame uh and is doing a lot better actually these days but uh he even has been asked to comment like should parents not be allowed to like be on their famous kids payroll and he said like that's up to the the next generation of child stars to decide because even that may have you know pros and cons but yeah, we're not going to abolish child stars. I don't I don't think it's a realistic uh, call to action no. <laughs> stemming from this episode. But I do think that I think as consumers of media, we can be more aware of what are we clicking on? What are we watching? Mm. Like, I would say probably stay away from social media accounts of children and like family channels and things like that. I, that would be clickbait. my personal recommendation. Yeah. Clickbait about child stars. Um, Allison Stoner mentioned that in that article we read about like every time you click on the link of where are they now like we're we're here we're we're alive um great point and so like as consumers we can maybe limit the way in which we have contact with child stars and definitely if anyone is listening to this and is posting things about counting down till a child star turns 18 
knock that off. Unfollow. Unfollow. We're not doing that. Don't email us. <laughs> don't even, you don't know my email. <laughs> um, like as consumers, we can change our habits so that it's less monetizable to constantly put children in the front and to our colleagues who are listening who are in Hollywood these can be big conversations to have about limiting how much access children have to being on sets and being interviewed and being on social media um, providing things like mental health services in the moment or even like coaches who can be there to help children like regulate and separate between like character and themselves of giving children like a debrief space almost to like come out of the character hmm. all of these little things could be done but I think that the like, biggest call to action is just like be careful with how you consume child star content that's great that's yeah that's actually an actionable item and I was starting to feel pretty bleak about this <laughs> whole thing so that's that's a really awesome point and um actionable and like and I don't think it means like the documentary you watch showbiz kids like those adults are there of their own volition and with their consent to tell their stories like I think that's a great type of media to consume to like learn their stories but do we need to be clicking on like well Prez Hilton just does weird TikToks now but like don't follow him you know like (laughs) don't click on articles about like children of celebrities now right like I think of the Siri Cruz effect like we don't need to know who these children are or what they're doing. Oh, yeah. I was th- just thinking about that, that that's such a positive shift where a lot of famous people ha- these days have, have been very intentional about, like, not showing their children's face. Yeah. Like, and what a added labor, um, especially for those out in Southern California, <laughs> um, to shield your children from the paparazzi in mm-hmm. this and, you know, oh yeah that's another call to action like we are all the paparazzi with our smartphones Mm -hmm. like let's give people some space and respect in public yeah um but yeah like i i think especially a lot of these kids now adults who uh (laughs) former child stars have been very intentional about their own child autonomy and Mm -hmm. kind of breaking that cycle which is spectacular and you know if you're a parent out here whether or not you are a manager of your <laughs> offspring just thinking about ways to to promote your own child's like autonomy mm-hmm. and sense of being trusted is always a good call to action <laughs> always a good uh sprinkle on top of the <laughs> episode sunday and then i think another call to action therapy yeah. <laughs> as we mentioned uh can can help kind of work through some of these challenging themes that are not unique to child stars mm-hmm. but um maybe even more difficult for child stars. Yeah. And as always, there are resources on my website. I link hotlines in every episode bio so that if you need immediate help, you know who to call um, because this is not therapy. This is a podcast. But there are a lot of great resources out there to get connected if you're like, oh, I'm resonating with a lot of stuff that they talked about. Even if I'm not famous, I would like to explore that some more. A therapist is the perfect person to do it with. Well, I think that kind of has covered as much as we can for right now. I think there are a lot of branches we can circle back to in later episodes if Dr. Renault would like to return. I'd love to. Um, but just to kind of wrap us up, any final thoughts, Anne, about this topic or, you know, kind of anything we've gone through today? You know, I think we've cast a wide net. We've covered a lot of ground. I I want to thank you for the opportunity. It is always just a pleasure to uh, chat with you. And this has been heavy but Mm -hmm. also very thought-provoking and I'm, I'm really glad to be a part of it 
Well, I'm glad to have you on, and I think we're definitely going to have to have you back on. Um, But with that, I just want to say thank you to everyone for listening all the way through, and we'll see you in the next one. Bye-bye. Bye.